are listening to Intersections with Phil Allen Jr., engaging the issues that matter at the intersection of race, culture, and theology. I anticipate that you all who are listening will be inspired by this episode. Whether you're into sports or not, my next guest, Coach Will Jones, head basketball coach of North Carolina A&T State University, shares his journey to becoming the head coach of my alma mater. A&T is where I played college basketball for four years in the 90s. And I have to admit, listening to Coach Jones in this conversation makes me wish I had some eligibility left to play. I'd suit up for him in a heartbeat after listening to him share his vision for the program moving forward. This week, I want us to take a look at the intersections of sports and race. To understand systemic racism, we must be able to see how racism infects every aspect of society. That's right, infects every aspect of society. So sit back and be inspired by Coach Jones's journey to where he is today and learn from his experience, his wisdom, and his faith. Coach Will Jones, welcome to Intersections. Glad you could be here. Uh, right now, it's an exciting time to be an Aggie with all that's happening at the university on a national scale and um, with Aggie athletics, especially all the championships, all you guys are doing great. Um, and you're at the helm of a very coveted position. I want you to take a few minutes, man, and tell us a little bit about your journey, Will Jones's journey to this place, this, this head coaching position at A&T. Um, where, where are you from? Where'd you play ball? Uh, did you always know you wanted to coach? Things like that. Um, you, you, you're a homeboy to me down down in Monk's Corner, South Carolina, <laughs> South CAC. So I uh, want to hear more about that journey, man. Let us know who you are. You know, uh, it's good to be on, you know, uh, especially with a home, with a homeboy, you know, from the low country. Yeah. Doing big things out on the West Coast. Trying and, to. Um, you know, uh, having a relationship and hearing the good things about you and then um, that you went to A&T and, and was a baller and, um, you know, made your mark there. But, um, yeah, Monk's Corner, South Carolina, small town, um, you know, in South Carolina where, uh, you know, just in that area, man, a lot of guys doing good things. And um, just, uh, you know, grew up playing uh, every sport you can name, you know, basketball, ran track, played football, um, you know, played with a lot of really good really good guys and um you know just always wanted to be a, a basketball player really basketball was what i wanted to do um our football program was really good and you know i was recruited for football also and um and, but i always had my set my eyes set on being a basketball player and um was able to uh get on you know and play at south carolina state uh you know for Cy alexander and um you know, at that point in time, you know, they were winning championships. He was a really good coach and it was a privilege and an honor to be a part of that program at that time, because having a chance to compete and go to the NCAA tournament is really a dream for any kid that plays, you know, basketball at the college level. Yeah. And so, um, you know, we were able to, you know, uh, you know, get to the NCAA tournament my senior year, win a regular season championship my junior year. And, uh, and so, you know, I had a chance to uh, rub shoulders and develop relationships with, uh, with, with my teammates and then also the coaches. And, um, you know, coaching, you know, was something, you know, playing for a really good high school coach, 
in football and basketball, to be honest with you, both of them won a state championship. And so, you know, for, for me, the teaching part of mm. basketball was something I kind of always had, you know, you know, my friends or guys, the younger guys below me, I would always try to work with them and, and try to show them. I just had a knack to show them how to, how they can score, you know, really and truthfully. And so um, I remember, you know, my senior year, um, we got back from, from uh, Oklahoma and um, I asked coach Alexander to take my resume to, uh, to, to the final four to give it to some coaches to see if they would, you know, um, have a, a position for a GA position. You know, I was trying, I didn't know, you know, how I was going to get into coaching. I actually had already signed a contract to work for Sears and Roebuck. I was, you know, going to move out to Philadelphia and um, they started me like at $55,000 to be a part of the management trainee program. And, mm -hmm. you know, the research on that is, you know, in about four or five years in that program, you're making six figures, you know? So I was, you know, I was like, okay, if I'm not a coach, I'm going to be successful. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and so, you know, coach came back. He called me probably about nine 30, 10 o'clock, you know, called me and said, you know, coach, can you come to my, my, my house? And I, I went out, said, coach, listen, you can't tell anybody. I just took the job at Tennessee State University as the head coach. He said, coach, I want you to come be a part of my staff. I want you to come be a part of my staff. You made an impression on me um, the four years you've been here. Um, and I want you to come join me. Wow. You know? And so, you know, I turned, I called Sears and Roebuck and turned, turned that down. And, you know, uh, instead of making 55,000, you know, a year, I was making $600 a month as a stipend. <laughs> And betting on myself yeah. that I was going to try to be uh, the best coach that I could be. And, wow. you know, I hit the ground running at Tennessee State. And uh, 20 years later, man, um, you know, I'm a head coach at the biggest, largest HBCU in the world, man. And it's, it's, been, a, it's been an amazing journey. Wow. that That's an incredible story, man. <laughs> I, I got goosebumps listening to that, dude. <laughs> I, I, my, one of my questions was going to be, how'd you get into um, – How'd you get into to coaching? Real quick, I want to ask this question about Monk's Corner. Do you remember a guy named Esau Mahoney? Yeah, yeah. So Esau Mahoney played at Macedonia, and uh, my high school coach coached him. Okay. And so, you know, when he came to Berkeley and I was coming up, you know, he said, man, listen. He said, man, you remind me a lot of a kid, Esau Mahoney, that I had. You know, and uh, he would always bring that name up. And I never got a chance to see the guy play, but obviously he was really good. <laughs> so, Bro. You know I mean? yeah, I heard that name a lot in practice. Yeah, Esau. I played with Esau in the state all-star game mm -hmm. back in 91. And I had never met I'd heard of him before the game, but I'd never uh, met him before that. And we played. Uh, I hadn't talked to him since then. I don't know what happened to him. But, uh, yeah, and what's interesting is as I'm listening to you, you remind me of Esau. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. you remind me of Esau. Wow, but this is an incredible story. I'm I'm still blown away by you. The idea of betting on yourself and and, and Coach Cy, Cy Alexander, it was an excellent coach for sure. Um, I played against Coach, and um, if I had gone to South Carolina State, it would have been only because of Coach Cy, just mm -hmm. his reputation. Mm -hmm. um, the men's basketball coach at A and T, that position is a special position in MEAC after the legacy of Cal Irvin. Don Corbett, Jeff Capel, the last two I played with, Don Corbett recruited me to play at A&T, and I'm forever in debt to Coach Corbett. Um, it won so many championships. Uh, when you were in the running 
and hired for this position. How did that feel? Did you feel any pressure or the weight of the position, especially once you got it? Um, or were you too excited and focused on the task ahead of you to be nervous? You were ready to roll, ready to go. Um, cause that's a that's a that's a big role, man. There's a lot you of know, weight that comes with that. You know, my outlook as a coach, you know, before I even got to North Carolina A and T, um, being playing at HBCU um, in my path, right? My path, you know, when I when, when I was finished with my two years of being a GA. Um, and now trying to find a full-time job, right, mm -hmm. uh, as, a, as a coach. Um, I asked God, I said, you know, I said, I want to be a trailblazer in this business, right? I want to I I be John Thompson. I want to be John Chaney. I felt like those guys were self-made. Um, they didn't come from a Duke tree or a Kentucky tree or Indiana tree. Like, those guys were self-made, and they were revered because – of the trailblazing aspect and so you know i left that ga position and i'm looking at my counterparts and on the other side the pwi gas and they're getting they're getting big time jobs and you know positions at you know uh, power five schools and i'm like man you know you know those guys are getting ahead of, ahead of me in the race like this it's, it's a race and they're winning right now yeah and um you know my first job was in Lemoyne on another HBCU D2 in Memphis, Tennessee, um, Hall of Famer, um, Harlem Globetrotter, um, David Smokey Games came out of retirement to come back and coach and be the athletic director at his alma mater. All right. And so they hooked me up with him at the final four, Coach Alexander and a guy, Frankie Allen, who was the head coach of Virginia Tech um, during those days. They hooked me up with Smokey. And I didn't really know Smokey, but I got to know him really good, you know, working for him. And, you know, Smokey Gaines was Dick Vitale's assistant coach at Detroit, mm. right? Dick Vitale left to take the Pistons job. Smokey became the head coach. So he was one of the first five African-Americans to have a head coaching job at a PWI. Then he left and went to be a head coach at San Diego State and recruited Michael Cage and a couple of NBA guys. And so I'm working for this guy and he's, you know, he's been through everything. And, you know, I'm, I'm 23, 24 at the time. And um, he's teaching me so much. He's teaching me so much about this business. And um, I asked God, take me from the bottom to the top. So in my mind, I'm like, man, this is a tough job. I mean, it's in the middle of South Memphis, Tennessee. Their murder rates, crazy mm. crime. I'm going to work every day. I'm pulling up at the morning on and right across the streets to projects. It's a tough, it's a tough situation. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I come out of that situation and, um, you know, I go through my career, South Carolina State, College of Charleston, Charleston Southern, uh, Jacksonville University in Florida, uh, one of the top JUCOs in the country, uh, Northwest Florida State. I'm going through this path, right? And uh, in 2014, um, I lo I, we lose my job at Jacksonville University. And so I've been in the business for about 10 years at that point. And I'm like, man, I just got married. I, I, you know, I don't have a job in college coaching. What am I going to do? I'm sending my resumes to different business to try to get a job. I'm overqualified. Or, you know, I can't, you know, I can't pay you this or whatever. It's tough. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, man, how can I reinvent myself? I'm an expert at what I do. Mm -hmm. How do I switch this thing around? And so 
I said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to start a business. So I started a basketball business. I'm training kids. I'm doing it elite camps and unsigned senior events, using my expertise in coaching at a high school, in a rural high school in, in Jacksonville, Florida, uh, that's predominantly white, to be honest with you. And, um, and so I get my head beat in my first year. I win two games, two games, right? And I'm like, man, can I really coach basketball? Like, am I a really good coach? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and, uh, you know, and so, you know, that next year, you know, as I'm training and coaching at this high school, I'm training, you know, two two guys in the NBA right now. You know, Yudoka Azabuki and I uh, was just on, on the on the Custis training last year, Little, both guys are in the NBA, you know, in the NBA right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, and during that, college coaches would call me, you know, and I remember getting a call from Coach Hamilton at Florida State. And he said, well, man, you know, what, what are you doing now? I said, hey, man, I'm just training Yudoka, man, and, uh, you know, trying to figure out how to get back in. I said, I may just do this for another year. And Coach Ham said, Coach, you don't need to do that. He said, Coach, this is a job opening for an assistant coach at Florida A&M right here in Tallahassee. You need to take that job. He said, when you take the job, you can come over here every day. You can come over here every day. You can use what, what we have. You can come t- talk to me, talk to wow. the assistants. You come, you take that job and you 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 come to Florida State every day and, and get what you need. And so I did it, man. I took that job at Florida State for a good guy, Byron Samuels, who I learned a lot from in that one year I was there. But every day I was over at Florida State, I was in Coach Ham's office, whether I was talking to him or whether I was just sitting in the couch, on the couch, listening to him conduct business, right? Uh, you know, and Coach Ham's a great guy. You know, he's turned Florida State program into, uh, they call it the new bloods because of the success he's had over the last seven years and the guys he's put in the pros. And so I'm learning, I'm digesting this information. And so at the end of the year, Coach Alexander resigns, right, at AT. And uh, one of my better friends, Jay Joyner, um, was there as an assistant. He was a South Carolina State guy. And he steps up and takes the position. Wins five games, goes five and five in the last 10 games, and AT hires him. And me and Jay started at Tennessee State together, even though he's older than me. We started together. I was the I was a GA, he was the operations guy. And uh, so we have become really close. He he knew my path and he said, Hey coach, listen, I'm gonna take this job. They gave it to me. I need you to be a part of my staff. We can turn this thing around. Wow. And so we moved down to Greensboro. Uh first year we won three games. Um, you know, we got to control the narrative. We had some really good guys sitting out. And so year two, we win 20. So we go from three wins to 20 wins. And the following year, we won 19 games. And so, you know, we always ask as people, we say, you know, I want this. I want I want to be a head coach. I want to be a pastor. You know, I want my own church or mm-hmm. I want my own business. We ask these things, mm-hmm. but we never say, hey, you know, God, you know, give it to me outside of the normal circumstances, right? Yeah. And so, you know, my best friend goes through a situation, he's suspended, you know, I have to become the interim coach. It's a tough situation. And what I say that to say, through this whole process, I wanted to be a head coach. And so during those 17 years, I was preparing myself every day to be a head coach so that when anything happened, I would be ready to step in to a situation and be successful. And I think the number one thing that helped me in that interim base was because the players knew as an assistant, 
that Coach Jones was about his his craft. Yeah. They know Coach Jones brought it every day. He was a big part of what we were doing, being successful. So the voice that I had didn't really have to change, right? So they, they believed in what I was saying. And we went on. We uh, were the highest team in the league. Um, you know, we, uh, we, we played for a regular season championship. I won the coach of the year the first year. And, um, you know, God blessed me to, to take that job. They, they offered me the job officially in June. And at that point, coming back to what you were talking about, the legacy of North Carolina a and I'm a historian, so I go back. I start reading, you know, Coach Corbett, you know, Kyle Irvin, Gene Littles, all of these guys, the success, right? You know, Coach Capel, the guy, the success that they had at a and And I start having my GAs pull all this information and put it together for presentations that we do. And North Carolina a and amongst mid-major schools has the third most regular season tournament championships of any mid-major team in the country behind Gonzaga and Creighton. All right, behind, behind Gonzaga and Creighton. Yep. And that's like the second slide that I show recruits, mm. all right, when they come on a Zoom with us. Like, okay, this is the history of this university, okay? This is what's going on here, all right? We had a pause where some things, every, every program has a pause where things go through a situation. But now with me at the, at the helm, I'm really pushing North Carolina a and I said, okay, if I'm the largest HBCU in the country, the most progressive HBCU in the world, at that round table, at that round table, there's a place for us, mm-hmm. right? There's a place for us. And that's not knocking any other HBCU. Yeah. It's a responsibility of A&T to use the resources that the forefathers had worked for way back when to put us in this position. So we need to be fighting to get to sit down in that seat that's prepared for us. And so as a head coach, that's what I'm pushing for our program right now. And it's a responsibility. And and I, I stand on the shoulders of giants, the guys who have done it before. I've reached out to the former players of all these coaches and brought them back into the program. And like right now, right outside of my office, it's a, it's really a history lesson right outside. You know, mm. Coach Corbett's picture, Kyle Urban's picture, some some guys from the past, some some pictures out there because our history is so strong in North Carolina a and I want people to understand that when they visit us. And so, yeah, man, you know, it, it's a privilege, man, to be the head coach at A&T and not only to be the head coach at this time period, where social injustice has flashed, has shined the light so much on HBCUs, and uh, we're in a good light nationally. Uh, we were one of two schools, Howard and ourselves, to sign a top 100 player this year, um, and you know we're proud of where we're going, man, and excited. And, and and you know, people always say, "Hey, man, you get stuck in the HBCU, man. If you, yeah. you start coaching there, you're not going to be able, you know." But I asked God, I said, take me from the bottom to the top, right? So any aspirations as a coach, right, that I, if I want to be John Thompson, right, you know, man, I can't be John Thompson if I'm at a and I got to be at Georgetown, right? But if I coach at a and I'm going to get stuck, so I ain't going to never get a chance. 
one month into that interim, the chancellor, I invite the chancellor to practice. So the chancellor's in practice and he's watching and he pulls me over and he said, coach, we're moving to the big South conference. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I'm sitting there like, well, yeah. I worked in the big South and I know, how to, I know how they, I know the roadmap through that conference. And at that point in time, I told my sisters, I said, anything that you ever thought you couldn't do because we were at an HBCU, wipe that clear. Yep. We still can accomplish any goal that we want to because we're going to take North Carolina A&T and put ourselves in this PWI conference, okay, and we're going to still be successful. We're going to still win championships. And that's a doorway to anything, any aspiration, any dreams of being the best at what you do in our profession. It's been an amazing ride. Coach, man, I just want to throw like one question out and just listen to you talk and tell stories, bro. I, I want to I, I want to check and see if I have any eligibility and come play for you <laughs> after that. <laughs> I, don't have, I don't have the knees, but I, I, I can get you some fouls or something, man. Hey, My goodness. Listen, we see good players. We see good players. We'll figure it out. Man, um, you said so much in that. Um, one thing I want to make this point because the intersections is about you know race, culture, and, and and faith theology. And you you said I asked God. You said it several times. I asked God, and um, so faith is obviously very important to you, and your in your life and your journey. Um, but I've, I've as I'm listening to you, I see how God has orchestrated, has put the the people particularly. In your life, because that's kind of parallel to my my journey as a pastor, man. If it weren't for this this relationship, where you said you got to watch Coach Hamilton, and I remember Coach Hamilton recruited me when he was at Miami, um, when I was in high school. Uh, lightly, he didn't recruit me too heavy, but I kept getting these letters from Coach Hamilton, and he was one of the people I wanted to play with, um, black head coach. But you said you got to watch him do business, and that's what happened with me in ministry um, years ago. I got to sit in the room with some giants and watch them just do what they do. And so I'm able to learn and take that with me um, as, as, a, as a pastor over the years and, and now in my transition. But you also said you saw these, these, these assistants, your counterparts. I imagine, I think you said white, white assistants. They seem to be getting ahead of you and you're, you're, yeah. you're behind them, right? Yeah. Yeah. But man, I'm seeing how God... Had, had you in this crucible for 17 years as an assistant. Mm -hmm. Because it, 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 that trailblazing prayer you prayed is happening. Yes, it is. It's, it's happening. And there, there are people, and we can talk about this in a little bit, because there are people who may be pushing back against getting out of the MEAC. And going, I'm, I'm one of those people that's on board. I want to see A&T one day in the ACC. Mm -hmm. you, you know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? That's how I think. Um, but I want to pause for a second and come back to, because you, you you kind of alluded to this, and this is my next um, segment. I want to check in with you and see how you're doing personally after all that's going on in this past um, 12, 13, 14 months, especially the social unrest and with the verdict that just came out with George Floyd recently. How are you doing and how have you been able to navigate for yourself and your family, but also the responsibilities as a coach, taking your players through this journey. How have you yeah. been able to, to, to handle this? How are you doing, first of all? 
you know, um, being from the South, like we are, you know, um, we got the stories, right? Yeah. My grandma passed away when she was uh, 93 years old. She grew up, born in 1919. Got the stories. You know, my, my, my mom and my dad, they grew up, they picked cotton, segregation. I got the stories, right? Understanding what this country and what our history uh, was, right? And it, it, was, it wasn't a more than a couple of years ago, I think, you know, just coaching basketball and sometimes as coaches, we try to relate to our own, right? We try to tell them, hey man, you know, play for a black coach or, you know, you know, represent your culture, right? And I think before this social injustice, our young people, they didn't know yeah. what was going on. Like they didn't, they, they didn't really understand, right? Less than a lifetime, right? That you didn't have a choice where you ate at. Yep. You couldn't walk in this building. Like they're thinking like that was 2000 years ago. No, 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 no. That, that was in a lifetime. That was 60 years ago, yep. 70 years ago, where being a black African-American minority in this country, you, you didn't have the privileges that you have every day right now. And so when the social injustice piece hit my team and my family, you know, we talked about it. Like I said, I had a background in understanding what we were dealing with. Like this stuff has been dip, been dip going on for years. The difference is we got cameras, we got access, all right? And people are watching now. So everything's, we're living in a movie. We're living in a, a real live movie right now, right? We see everything, right? Everything's recorded. And I told our guys, I said, listen, you guys, we're living in, in one of those places in an encyclopedia, a period of time to where it's it's one of those circles, you got a line and it's a circle. Like yep. this is a this is one of those periods, right, where change, things are happening. People are gonna look back at this time period and ask questions about what were they doing during that time? How was it to be an African American during that time? Like this, we're, we're living in it right now. Yep. And I told him, I said, this is not, you know, something that's going to disappear tomorrow. I said, guys, this is, this, we're in a time of transition, right? We're dealing with a coronavirus, a, a pandemic. That's something, that, that's something that this generation hadn't seen before. And at the same time, social unrest, we're doing Zoom meetings. You're not in class. There's nobody on campus. People aren't walking around outside. Everybody has masks on. Mm. My God, this is not a dream. We're living in a period of transition. Mm -hmm. And so when we went into the season, I told our guys, I said, listen, last year when we were playing our best basketball, the pandemic hit, we didn't get an opportunity to finish. Okay. I said, but now we're coming back and things are still unsure, but we got to be ready to pivot, move, stop, start. But we can't forget what we're trying to do. We're trying to win a championship. So, but all the other teams are trying to win a championship too. So who deals with it? The best is going to win. All right. We have to be ready. We can't give up. We can't feel sorry for ourselves. We got to focus on the goal that we have. And so we talked about that all year. 
I had chief of police, judges. Mm -hmm. uh, I had some of my friends that are doing successful things come talk to the guys via Zoom. Education, mock, uh, I did some mock police uh, uh, pullovers with the guys, you wow. know, asking them questions uh, and how would they respond if a police pulled them over. Um, and so we did a lot of those things, man, in the fall and just continue to educate them um, about you're living in this in this field. This could happen to you tomorrow. You got to be prepared. And as a coach, uh, that's one of my responsibilities to make sure these young men understand it's not just about basketball. In this period, they can really see your opportunity that you were been, been working for since you could understand you could be successful playing a sport was taken away just like that. Nobody you can't feel sorry for yourself. Nobody, your coach can't help you. Your parents can't help you. All right. This is the world we're living in. You can't go outside without a mat. We don't, you, you can't go play with your teammates. You can't go play with your best friends right now because we don't know where this virus is at. So don't take anything for granted. Don't take a day off. Don't take this game off. Don't say I'm going to do it tomorrow. You don't know if we're going to get a chance to do it tomorrow. You got to do it right now. We got to be the best at what we're trying to do today. And though, and then that really was the message that I, I kind of brought back to the guys every couple of weeks. Hey guys, listen now, don't take advantage of nothing now. This game, let's not come back in here and say, let's do it tomorrow. We might not have a chance to play tomorrow. Mm. You know, we have the best record in the MEAC this year. We're prepared to go play in the MEAC tournament. We're excited. We're, you know, we were at the hotel, guys are locked in and we we're practicing. We get the phone call that one of our, one of our coaches tested positive for, 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 for the virus. Right. And so I'm sitting there as a coach, as a leader, not trying to show the guy that I'm disappointed. Mm -hmm. Right. So we get back to the hotel and I'm calling, we're talking to administration and trying to figure out, is it any way that we can still play? And so the MEAC, you know, said, okay, we're going to test coach one more time. He comes back positive. You guys got to go back to Greensboro. And so they test him, comes back positive. We leave the next morning. We go back to Greensboro. Coach goes to the health center, gets tested, tests negative. negative. Test again, test negative. Test again, test negative, all right? And so, but I've been telling the guys all year, all right, Let's take care of what we can take care of. And I said, guys, you took care of what you took care of. We are putting a banner up in Corbett Center, the first one, all right, for a regular season championship in over 30 years. Yes, we didn't get a chance to play in the MEAC tournament. We didn't get a chance to play in the NCAA tournament. But, guys, history is going to remember you guys yep. here at AT as being the team, the first team in 30 years to add a legacy, all right, for basketball in North Carolina A&T. And really, you know, and that's what we're building on. And we're leaving the MEAC. But when they look back, North Carolina A&T won the championship the first year in the MEAC and the last year in the mm. MEAC. So that, that's all. That's, that's, that's good for me. That's it. That's it. I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that that was the first regular season championship. Matter, matter of fact, 30 years, that's my freshman year. Yeah, 91. Over 30, years. over 30 years. 
I didn't realize that. Um, and, and, you know, someone told me, a, a senior, Bobby Moore, told me way back my freshman year, he said, remember this championship. He said, don't take the regular season championships lightly because they're hard mm -hmm. to come by. Oh, hard. And, and, and so I hold on to that one well, along with the, the tournament championships as well. Um, you, 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 you alluded, tell us a little bit about how your journey prepared you and we're going to come, we're going to, we're going to tie all this in, in, in the next, next question, but how has your journey prepared you now for coaching in the big South among the PWIs night in, night out? Because you've played and coached in the MEAC, mm -hmm. you've coached in the, in the big South, there, there is going to be a difference. Be yes. and, and, and we don't like to talk about it, but race is is our reality. It's, it's a part of our, our reality. How has that prepared you? Because you're going to have new rivalries now. You're going to be in new gyms now. And later on, I'll share one of my stories with you that I experienced at, at, against UNCG. But now you've got new rivalries, new home, new hostile environments, if you will. How are you? Uh, how has your time prepared you and prepared these guys to now trailblaze and go into the, the Big South and, and do some damage? My path, take me, take me from the bottom to the top. It's tough. Being an HBCU coach is tough. You're recruiting kids. You know, they want to come. They know the campus is nice. Their best friend went to, to an HBCU. But we're in the MEAC. We're in the SWAC. I don't want to play in the MEAC and the SWAC, coach. I want to play in the Big South. I want to play in the Atlantic Sun. All right? It's not too much difference, right? Yeah. And so... That path that I was talking about earlier, I wanted to get from the HBCU side of it and figure out what was going on on the other side. And so I'm at one of the top junior colleges in the country in Florida, and I'm working there for two years. And when you work at an institution like that, and you're putting guys in the SEC, and you're putting guys in the Big 12 and Pac-10 Pac every year, you get a certain level of respect. And so after my second season, um, you know, my mom was sick, you know, going through some things. I needed to try to get back to the East Coast. And so Charleston Southern uh, came over. And a good friend of mine, Earl Grant, who's another, he's from Charleston. Earl, you know, you know, has, has been the head coach of the College of Charleston and now is the head coach at Boston College. I called Earl. I said, hey, man, I need to get back home. Uh, can you call Barkley at Charleston and let him know, man, you know, I, you know, I would love to come back. So. He put me in contact with Barkley. I went down. Charleston Southern's a place that I was going to play pickup basketball at in the summers and working ba basketball camps there, uh, you know, years back in the summer. And I meet with Barkley, and he hires me. Charleston Southern, the smallest gym in America at the D1 level. Wow. I'm taking this job. How, how am I going to get players? You know, it's a, you know, how are we going to get it done? And we take that job and we're dead last in, in the big South. God puts me in this place, two assistant coaches, Bob Ritchie and Eric Morrell, the two, my two, you know, partners as assistant coaches, two white guys. Barkley Raider Bob, you know, worked for Eddie Fogler at South Carolina. Eddie Fogler was an assistant coach for Dean Smith. The conversations we were having in that office at Charleston Southern, this is why. This is why Dean Smith did this 
This is the reason why we play defense this way. This is the reason why we scout this way. Just learning how it's been done and the reason why it was being done from the top, right? Coming down, trickling down from the top. And so in those two years at Charleston Southern, we win the most games they had won in 16 years. Mm. Okay. After my second year, I get a call from Jacksonville University. Cliff Warren calls me and says, Coach, I want you to come be a part of my staff. So I leave Charleston Southern. I go to Jacksonville where D. Brown went to school, Artis Gilmore. Cliff was a black coach that was one of the top up-and-coming coaches in the country at that time. And he wanted me to come be you know, at Charleston Southern, I was a recruiter. That's what I was. Coach wanted me to be a recruiter. I couldn't really coach. I could develop in skill development. But in terms of the coaching games, you know, making adjustments, I, I wasn't really involved in that. But I knew I could do it. I knew I could do it. You know, I wasn't sitting next to the head coach. I was sitting next to the players. Mm. I was a player's relationship guy, mm. right? You know, and that's a position a lot of a lot of black coaches get at the top level when you work in a PW, you're, you're the relationship guy. Mm. We're going to coach. We're going to coach down here. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And so I go, to, I go to Jacksonville and uh, Cliff says, listen, coach, Cliff had uh, worked at Georgia Tech for Paul Hewitt. Paul Hewitt, they had just went to the national championship, final four. So again, take, take me from the bottom to the top. So now I'm about to work for a coach that took a team to the final four in college basketball. And what habits need to happen on a daily basis to take a team to the final four in college basketball. Mm -hmm. Okay. And on this journey, all right, it's a roadmap. It's a, you gotta, you gotta know what the blueprint is. Okay. And so Cliff says, hey, listen, coach, if they don't hear my voice, they need to hear your voice, all right? So I've been going through my career. I've been an assistant coach and sometimes a third assistant, you know, in pecking order. And, you know, my voice might, might didn't count as much as the, the, the guy before me or the guy ahead of me, right? And so now this coach is saying, if they don't hear my voice, they need to hear your voice. That means that when I get home at night, I can't just take the job and the job is over. No, it's a 24-hour job now what i do as an assistant coach the top assistant coach will determine how this program goes mm. he's given me that responsibility as a black head coach and during that time at jackson with my four years i was able to get into some programs with the ncaa the ace program that has some the top uh, 20 assistant coaches across the country go to the ncaa they talk to you about being a coach, search firms, interviews, talking to ADs, talking to the top coaches in the business, being able to access that information, right, to prepare you to be a head coach. I was able to start doing that stuff, all right, at Jacksonville, right? And then during that time, you know, I've never been fired, never been fired, never been fired. I'm at the top. I feel like it's crazy. Tennessee State, the place that I started, the job came open. On Tuesday of that week, we got let go. She mm. called, the athletic director, Teresa Phillips, called Cliff Warren and said, hey, listen, we're looking at Will for this position. All right. 
is it okay if we talk to him? So Cliff calls me, hey, Teresa called. I, I gave you a big-time recommendation. Hey, man, you know, get your stuff together, be prepared, X, Y, and Z. That Friday, Cliff calls the staff and says, hey, guys, we just got to let go. I'm that close, that close to having a chance to interview and be a head coach at Tennessee State. Teresa Phillips was going to hire a young coach that had had connections to Tennessee State. But the politics of it is now we got to let go at Jacksonville. Can't hire a coach that just got let go. Mm. So just like that, that opportunity disappears out of the air. I'm fired. And it goes back to what I talked about earlier. Now I had to reinvent myself. What do you want to do now at this point? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so it was one of those situations where, you know, I had to continue to learn. So now I get to A&T and it's crazy. The, the, the opportunity was A&T either going to the Atlantic Sun or the Big South. Atlantic Sun and the Big South. Two leagues that I had coached in. And I told, I told the chancellor, hey, I, I know how to win in those leagues. I know how to win <laughs> in those leagues, you know, because I had been through those leagues, Winthrop, the Winthrop's of the world, Liberties of the world, okay? Yeah. Right, the Coastal Carolinas of the world, and we were playing in those leagues. The coaches during that time, I know those guys. We competed against each other. You know what I'm saying? And so I felt like this is perfect. This is a perfect storm for me. A&T's going into the Big South with a head coach that's been through that, that grind, that's been through that grind. You know what I mean? And not only that, God said, listen, I'm going to put you over there in the Big South this year. Went through Their coach left and went to the College of Charleston. That job is a transition right now. Radford, who had been really good in the Big South, their coach, they just got a new coach. So we're going into the league. Those two programs are in transition, and A&T is coming in. It's a perfect time to go in there and get some things done from day one in the Big South. Wow. I, I want to go back to something. And believe it or not, this is part of my research, my theological research, is th this idea that in basketball and football especially, heavily, participa heavily participated by black athletes. But when you get to the coaching ranks, you don't see the same amount, the same uh, representation coaching, athletic directors, um, presidents of universities, you don't see it. You can go to sports, you see all the players, but you start to see the, the coaches, the GMs, executives. It's, you, don't, you don't see the representation there. Mm -hmm. Talk about that experience, briefly talk about that experience, being a black head coach um, in the NCAA ranks compared to being a white coach and what changes need to happen moving forward so that there's more representation because you're talking 65, 70% of the players are African-American, but yes. you don't see that same representation or close to it in the coaching ranks. Right now, it's 103 out of uh, 365 jobs, uh, African-American coaches. Um, right now, I think it's 12 power five uh, black head coaches. Okay. And, you know, the percentages of players, African-Americans in basketball and football is way above the coaching percentage. And there are coaches out here, man, that we're coaching. 
you know, we're, we're, we're definitely there. Uh, we just haven't been able to get the opportunity. Um, and just this year with the George Floyd social injustice, probably 85% of the coaches that have been hired in football and basketball, women's and men's this year have been African-American. Wow. It's been unbelievable. It's been a really, really uh, big time uh, spring and summer right now for, for African-American coaches. Mm -hmm. We have to, you know, Coach Ham, you know, I'm, I'm a part of a, a group that formed this summer. It's 14 um, African-American head coaches from across the country. We're in our first five years of coaching. And we got together during the pandemic and we were talking and just chopping it up at night. And, and uh, we said, hey, man, you know, how can we help this narrative? What can we do? And um, so we decided that we were going to get every African-American coach in the country on a Zoom. We're going to call, reach out, and get everybody on a Zoom at one time and have a meeting. And uh, we, were, we were able to do that successfully. And we just asked the coaches to give one hour every month to get on this call so we can have a connection, so we can't be fragmented, so that we all can be together and talk about some of the reasons and some of the things we need to do to, to continue to win all right, to continue to help each other move forward in this business, right? And so we did that, man, and we we're almost we're coming up on a year anniversary of, of that call. And I say that to say, you know, we as black, black, black coaches, right, were separated for such a long time. And Coach Ham said, we have, we've had good jobs. We've had Kentucky. We've had Georgia, right? We've had Oklahoma State. We've had Indiana. We have had good jobs as African-Americans, right? But when you get those opportunities, you have to win. At the end of the day, winning is not black and white. Guys. Mm -hmm. Winning is winning, mm -hmm. right? And so you have to be successful. When you get these jobs, you have to be successful because if you're not successful as an African-American, you don't get a second chance. And mm -hmm. really, that's where the discrepancy is. It's not that we haven't gotten the opportunities mm -hmm. is when you get the opportunities, you don't get a second life. Mm -hmm. The white coach or the predominantly white institutions, those guys get multiple opportunities, yeah. even if they don't reach success at one job. That's the difference. Mm -hmm. That's the difference. All right. And a lot of it starts with relationships with those ADs and those presidents that's running these institutions um, because they know them. Um, they know they come from different places or they work with them or their dad worked with them or their dad was a coach or my uncle was AD, whatever. That connection, right, is deeper, right? And so they get those second and third opportunities. And so, you know, we have to, you know, more ADs, all right? More ADs, you know, more kids coming out of sports, right? Getting them involved in administration, but it's bigger than that, right? As athletes, we go play, and our goal is to be a pro, mm -hmm. right? We got hoop dreams. Yeah. We got hoop dreams, right? The predominantly white side, they're not, they're not the best players on the team, right? So what they do, they go be managers at Florida. They go be managers at Kentucky. Those managers turn into director of basketball operations. 
those director of basketball operations turn into to assistant coaches. And mm. at 25, if I work for Roy Williams at, at Kansas or North Carolina at 25, and I put work with them, I've been with them as a student manager, uh, administration guy. He helped me be an assistant coach. I'm 25 right now. Roy Williams can pick up the phone and call Appalachian State and say, hey, I got a guy who's been working for me for six years. He's ready to be a head coach. He's 25 years old. He's going to get a job. Wow. I'm still in hoop dream. Yeah. I'm still over here <laughs> trying to go over here, trying to get to Spain, trying to get to France yeah. to play basketball, right? I still got these hoop dreams. And now when I come back overseas, all right, or when those hoop dreams dry up and, and my jump shot is not working anymore, I want to be a coach. All right, but now I'm 31. I'm 31. He's 25. He's a head coach. I'm 31. I'm the last assistant coach, or I'm the the players' earning coach. We're at two different ends of the spectrum. Wow. So now I'm behind in the race. All right. So a guy like me, I went straight from playing to a GA spot. So listen, I'm even. I'm even with the guys. I'm starting at least in the same realm, okay, with these guys. I might not get the same job opportunities, but I'm in the business. The years count. Yeah. What I do in those years, am I preparing myself to be successful? I should be because if I get that opportunity, you know, in, in Greensboro, you know, I'm the head coach. Wes Miller was the head coach at UNCG. Me and Wes Miller grew up in the Big South together competing each other as assistants. Dustin Kearns, the head coach of App State. He was a GA at Tennessee State the same two years I was a GA at, at he was a GA at Tennessee when I was a GA at Tennessee State. All right, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. The coach at Wilmington was a coach in the Big South. We were assistants. He was at uh, Gardner Webb when I was at Charleston Southern. All right, you talk about these people that we were on the same path, all right, God didn't say you go, everybody's going to be a head coach, but he gave me an opportunity, and I can look around and say, you know what? I was competing against these guys all my career. Wow. These are the same guys I've been uh, competing against. And so we got to do our part in terms of being successful, preparing ourselves, all right? And same thing with the athletic director administration stuff. We got to get more kids in, 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 in the queue earlier so that they can grow into this business uh, because nobody's going to give us anything. You got to earn it, too. Yeah. Yeah, man, you just shed so much light for me. You just shed so much light for me on 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 the path and the journey. I, I didn't even make the connection between the guys pursuing the best players on the team generally are African-American. They're pursuing the professional um, career playing ball. Meanwhile, these white guys, you know, I, I watch some of these college players and I'm saying the three guys on the end of the bench that never get in the game, they become head coaches. Become head coaches. Right. And you never make that connection. And I remember Coach Corbett told me, he said, son, he said, he told me, he said, don't chase this thing all your life. He said, I know you want to play pro ball. Don't chase it all your life. We were in the training room. He was already retired. And he, he pulled me to the side and he said, he said, you played your last game on national TV against in the NCAA tournament against Wake Forest. He said, that's a dream come true. Mm -hmm. He said, "If you, he said don't 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 become bitter at the game because you're chasing it all these years." Now he didn't bring up coaching. Mm -hmm. Had Coach Corbett mentioned to me in that conversation anything about coaching, 
and made that connection, I may have gone down that route. Mm -hmm. And it would have made sense to me back then. You just, what you just shared took me back almost 30 years. And that conversation now has a different context for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and you can't really fault these guys for wanting to pursue that 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 dream. Oh, but yeah. there's there's a lot of guys that's on the on the teams. They're black, and they're not going to go pro. Most of them not going. Yeah. Well, vast majority not going to go pro. Exactly. <laughs> right. And so that that's something. You know, who any anyone listening, whether they're uh, coaches, players, uh, even parents. Um, consider this. Consider what Coach Will just, just, just uh, Coach Jones just shared with us um, about about this journey. Now, when you go into the Big South, I want to be respectful of your time. But when you go into the Big South, you know we mentioned earlier about the differences. Um, I, I, I imagine recruiting is gonna is gonna be a little different as well, um, and being in those environments. Let me give you an example. If you took what we what we went through in the past year and you put that back, you take us back 30 years, because um, this happened for me a couple of years, my senior year after, this was after uh, Rodney King incident, several years, so that had already died down. Um, I remember looking up in, in, in Greensboro Coliseum my senior year against UNC Greensboro, and I see this makeshift African-American doll, really big, almost like four feet, five feet. And number 12, A&T number 12. And they got a rope around his neck. <laughs> passing him around wow. the gym. And I remember during the game looking up, my first response was, look at that. And they, they're trying to get at, get in my head. You know, I'm mm-hmm. the, me and John, I was the second leading scorer that year. And they're trying to get in my head. And then I saw this rope and I was like, is that a rope? Rope. And I took, I looked at the referee and I said, you see that? And he just kind of glanced up there and he just ready to take the ball out. That stuck with me all my life, man. And I didn't say anything because I think, I don't know, I don't, I don't know if I was ready, if I had the language, the, 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 the courage, but it stuck with me all my life that it was so normal for them to put a black doll, put a rope around his neck, and pass them around as a joke. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I can't even imagine if that had happened, say, this year. If it happens in today's culture, what Man. would happen, right? Man. And so I, I think about that. I've, all, I've thought about that often in the last few months about you guys going to the Big South and experiencing some of the hostility. So it's a little different at a black college. You know, and, and it's not that we haven't played white schools at A&T, mm-hmm. but now it's night in, night out. You're rivals. Yep. And... Um, just curious as to how will you prepare your players now, post George Floyd, but still getting these videos um, put out there. How will you prepare them to be able to respond to some of the comments that may be made from the stands night in, night out? They know your name now. You know, how will you prepare them for that experience? We, we, you know, it's, it's, I started preparing this team to, to our program to move into the Big South the day I took, they, they offered me the job. Mm. And I would tell our guy, we're not in the MEAC. We're not in the MEAC. Some plays, a timeouts, or some things that happen, I would say, guys, what's going on? We're not in the MEAC. That's, that's, that's not a play that we need to make. That's not a reaction that we need to have, right? You know, even off the court, guys, like, 
what we're, what we're doing is, is not the level that we need to be at. And so it's a mindset of, of, of what you need to be executing uh, every day, the efficiency that we need to be operating at every day. This spring, when we started to work out, the emphasis was details, details. And some, you know, some guys, I mean, why, coach, why do you want us, everybody to have everything on, the same shorts, the same shirt, the same shoes and weights? Like, uh, you know, if, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you're gonna miss practice or if you got an assignment, right? Don't just call the assistant coach 30 minutes before. I want you to call a day before and let coach know, hey, I got an assignment. I may not be able to make this appointment. Like those things were were emphasis this spring. All right. I wanted my guys to be thinking, and that's the word that's gonna be the difference in the MEAC in the Big South. Thinking. Mm-hmm. We have to be able to think the game, all right, not just play it, mm-hmm. not just rely on an athletic ability and hooping and looking at the other team because they're not as athletic as us or they think we, we think we're more talented. Okay. Nah, we're playing against guys that think more. We're playing against the guys that know they don't have hoop dreams and they're going to be coaches in four years. And so they're spending time in the film room. They're spending time with the head coach trying to figure out what's going on. They're watching film on their own, right? It's bigger than just me trying to make the NBA. These guys, these guys are gonna be, you know, they're trying to be coaches. They're trying to be doctors, lawyers. They understand that the shelf life as a basketball player is not gonna be forever for them. So their mentality is different, right? So we gotta start thinking the, the game more more details, our reactions, our showboating, the different things that we see in HBCU, we can't make as much mistakes in a game that we make against the teams that we play in the MEAC. Both teams making mistakes, making you know more mistakes than that should be made in a game. We can't take that mentality to the Big South, right? And in terms of you know reactions and, and, and people in the crowd, you know, we've played in some, dip, some difficult places. I remember um, before the George Floyd incident, we went and played at Southern Illinois. Um, and uh, I remember it. It was during the Kaepernick situation. And, you know, the kneeling was just like starting to kind of just like hit everybody, right? Like everybody wasn't kneeling. It was one or two guys. And I'm telling you, we had a gentleman that knelt at Southern Illinois and it's during national anthem and I can hear the voices. What is he doing? Get on your knees. He's disrespectful. What is he doing? Woo! You know, talking to the individual because mm. he was because he was kneeling. Yeah. And that whole game, they were on us. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, I, and I'll talk to some coaches and say, hey man, do you think the calls changed for us because we had a couple guys kneel? Do you think the refs took that out on us? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, we yeah. have asked ourselves those questions. Like, are we facing repercussions, all right, because we had a couple guys kneel or whatever? Yeah. That stuff's real now. Yeah. It's yeah. real, you know, because those refs are humans too. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so uh, it can determine games. It can, ter- can determine a game-winning call. 
And so, uh, you know, we talk about it, and, and a lot of people ask me, they say, well, you're at HBCU. You know, you guys don't, you know, you guys don't really deal with it as much as we do on a day-to-day basis. And, um, you know, the things that we've been doing at HBCU is playing the Black National Anthem and the National Anthem is something that the PWIs started doing a lot this year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because like we said at the beginning, these players are African-American. Like, they are. There's no difference between the African-American kid that goes to a and and the African-American kid that goes to Kentucky. Mm-hmm. They're coming from the same neighborhood. Mm-hmm. They're coming from the same schools. All right, the one that goes that went to Kentucky is just the better. He, he was he was the better player. He was the good. He was, he was a better player. All right, a lot of times than the kid that goes to A and T. But they're best friends. Mm-hmm. They're best friends. They went to the same high school. They got the same mom and dad. Their mom and dad still struggle or whatever whatever in their life or whatever. You take one and put them in one environment. You take the other and put them in the other environment. Right. And so there's no different. We're all, we're still African American. You know what I mean. One just is in an atmosphere where the the, the 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 story is told a little bit differently. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, the yeah. narrative is sold just a little bit different. You know, I didn't have to have you know those conversations as detailed as the guys in Kentucky about kneeling for the national anthem. Hey guys, if you're gonna kneel, just understand why you kneel. That 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 was my thing. As a coach, hey, just understand why you go. Nobody's gonna be mad at you yeah. if you kneel in the Corbin Center and show your respect, all right, for this movement. But understand when we go play at UNCG or we go play at uh, App State that you may get a question from the media, you may get some boos in the crowd, but always remember what you're doing and why you're doing it. I don't want it to be a fad. Don't just do it because everybody else is doing it. Exactly. Make sure you understand why you're taking a stand, right? And if it makes sense for you, right? I'm not going to tell the whole team that we need to stand. I'm not going to tell the whole team that we need to kneel because everybody's different. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So some teams, all everybody kneels. You know what I mean? Some teams, one or two people kneel. You got to start to ask your question like, dang, everybody has the same belief. You know, you know, NBA this year, you know, during the bubble, sometimes the whole, both teams now, you know what I'm saying? Sometimes you have one or two guys stand up, you know, you can't judge anybody, you know what I mean? Because everybody has their reasons. Yep. And so we just got to be prepared to handle ourselves, you know, as, as, as young men uh, on the road, focus on the goal and at A&T academics, the social life, the athletic piece, we have enough successful examples at A&T that we don't need to feel like we're not as good. We're actually, we're going to the big style. We're still going to be the biggest university in the league, yep. right? Yep. We're still going to be the university that's producing the most uh, engineers, minority engineers in the country, yeah. right? The top business professionals in the country. So in terms of stats, academics, athletics, we're still, I look at it as the better institution. Yeah. And so Amen. we should carry ourselves like that when we go into, you know, into these places. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to, I want to close with this, this statement. Um, I tell you what, I want to close with my statement, but I want to give you the final word on what do you envision, cast that vision for any alumni 
that's going to be listening. Anybody that that's going to be listening to this podcast, cast that vision for what you expect from uh, A&T basketball program, A&T athletics, A&T the university. As we enter into this this new season, excited, ready to see new things. Uh, we come with the pedigree and the legacy and the history. Um, what do you envision with, for this program? Cast that vision for us. The program where we're going, we're, we're going we're gonna to take a seat at that table. My, my vision is to be one of those top 25 mid-major plus programs year in and year out right at North Carolina A&T. Uh, regularly signing individuals that compete at that mid-plus level every year, that we can become over time a Gonzaga, a VCU, uh, those programs that the players and the, the, the caliber of guys that choose and they, they give A&T an opportunity to, to, to prove them that they can be successful uh, in their careers. And for me to do that, and it's crazy that you asked me this question, you know, we got to take our commitment level to another, we got to take that commitment level to a, to a higher level. We need to buy season tickets. Buy season tickets, even if you don't come to the game. We need to support. The players need to support, right? We get butts in the seats, right? But we need those season ticket dollars to continue to help our program, to put that extra revenue into our budget, all right, so that we can continue to climb, right? The, the, the job that A&T alum did during this last capital campaign, that article came out in the Greensboro paper yesterday. Yep. The, the most money generated from an HBCU in a capital campaign ever? Yep. Come on. At A&T, that's what we did, yep. right? And so we have the personnel, we have the numbers, all right? School's almost at 13,000, 14,000 kids right? We're, we're, we're pushing ourselves at a level that we can compete, but we need to continue to reinvest. We want to win. We, we talk about Aggie pride. Aggie pride is real. We need to put those dollars back in, reinvest into our programs so that we can continue to go out and recruit these best players so that we can continue to win. And so myself, to everybody, you know, and you probably haven't had a head coach ask about this, but I'm asking, we need to go ahead and start buying season tickets mm. for men's basketball for 2021-22. We need to, you need to write a check on Monday, right, to support our program mm -hmm. and what we're doing. We got a top 100 player coming to A&T, all right? So that narrative that's been going on on ESPN, should the top players go? Should they go to an HBCU? Can they be successful? It's our time to show that they can be successful because the choice is not just to come. It's a, it's a two-way street, right? Those kids have opportunities to go to some of these bigger schools that have some of those bells and whistles, all right? And I'm not saying that from day one we got to have all those bells and whistles, but we better have enough, right, to make these, these athletes that we're recruiting feel like, hey, man, I'm glad I came to A&T. They had everything as far as resources I, I needed to be successful. I'm going to tell the next guy he needs to come to North Carolina A&T. And to make that happen, we got to continue to reinvest into that brand, into North Carolina A&T, into athletics, so that we can continue to win at a high level. Amen. Amen. You know, what's, what's interesting, I wasn't even thinking about this podcast um, 
today, yesterday, but I wrote a check yesterday um, to the program. Um, and so I, I feel that same, like I'm, I'm with you. Uh, I'm, I'm committed as well. Um, man, th this has been incredible. This has been an incredible time. I've learned quite a bit listening to you, Coach. Like I said, I want to see if I got any eligibility <laughs> to come and play for you, man. I'll be the last man on the bench. I'm not used to being the last man on the bench, but these knees, I'd have to be the last man. Um, and, and, and the the Aggie men's basketball program are in talks right now to reinvest, like big, big time. Big time. We're, we're in talks right now. Some of the old heads um, pulled me in, and we're going to try to get some of the other guys in to, to reinvest big time in the program. So so know that that's coming down the, down the pipeline, man. It's in oh, the man, talks that's good news. right that's good now. News. Um, I want to I want to speak this over you, Coach. This is my pastoral hat coming out, putting on. When you talk, when I listen to you, I hear Paul, the Apostle Paul's journey. Um, Paul came from the smallest tribe, tribe of Benjamin. Paul wrote most of the New Testament, half the New Testament. But Paul came from the smallest tribe. I remember you talking about um, Lemoyne Owens, small HBCU. You talk about your, your role as the, the player's guy, the relationship mm -hmm. guy, mm -hmm. right? Paul had mentorship when he got his opportunity, when he encountered Jesus and got his opportunity. Paul had mentorship. Barnabas was huge for Paul when he was Saul. And it was Barnabas and Saul. And then later as he emerged, it became Paul and Barnabas. But he had mentorship, strategic people that spoke up for him that he could listen to and watch, right? And then Paul had dual citizenship. He was Hebrew and he was Roman citizenship. So he had some, he had an in on both sides. Mm -hmm. you, 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 you coached and played in the MEAC. You coached in the Big South. That's not an accident, bro. You got dual citizenship. So when I hear you, I hear Paul's journey. And I, I, I speak this and pray over your life, man. I will be praying for you that that all that you've prayed about being a trailblazer, that it is in the process of coming to pass. It is like like a woman told me once, I said, yeah, I'm trying to do this. And she said, you're not trying to you're not trying to do it. You're not going to do it. You're doing it. Mm -hmm. And so I passed that word on to you, my brother. You are doing it. I, I, I have not I haven't been this proud um, of I've always been Aggie, Aggie pride has always been there, but this proud of the program and 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 all that and that's a direct reflection of what you brought to the table. And I, I remember Coach um, Coach Jay uh, played against him and during my time, um, but but you're at that helm now, and 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 I believe God's hand is on you. All that you've shared about your journey and where you are and where you're taking this program, I pray that you're there. For a very long time, I pray that A&T, as you are successful, reinvest in you. Reinvest in you. And that vision comes to pass. Because I know that you shared. I know there's part of the vision you haven't even shared yet. You're probably too afraid to share it. It's probably bigger <laughs> than you can even stand. And that's good. That's okay. Because it's going to come to pass and you're going to share it down the road. We're going to have you back on this podcast. and You're going to say, you know what? Here's what I didn't say but what I hope would happen. 
and now it's happening, right? Mm -hmm. So, man, thank you for your time. Thank you for being Great. being here, man. I, I'm excited. I got, had goosebumps half of this half of this podcast, man. And um, I'm gonna be praying for you. God bless you. And um, I will be reinvesting, and have been, and will be reinvesting in this program. And I'll be keeping my. I, I want you guys to come to, to Southern California. Well, we're coming to Stanford next year. So I may, uh, I may have to know, take a trip up up north. That's that, a five. I know that's a little, that's a yeah. little, that's a little ways away, but we'll be we'll be in Stanford. We play Stanford this year coming up. So. Okay, I'm gonna try to get there. But I tell you what, if you come to Southern Cal, I want to I want to I want to treat the team. If I have, I want to I want to take care of the team in some way, take you guys to dinner or something. I want to be I want to do something, man. I want to show. I want to get a bullhorn, just ride around LA and just let everybody know who's in town. <laughs> sure, no doubt. But no doubt. Um, thank you for your time, man. Yeah, and man. I'm looking forward to seeing everything that's going on next year. Appreciate it. I want to add something about theology of play to this episode. Something brief. Now, I've learned that the essence of play is simply joy. And this is part of my research right now. Theologians describe it as the opposite of seriousness or work. Others define it as an escape from and into a place where one can make the rules and get lost in one's imagination. Play is actually where we are most human. Even scripture encourages us over and over again, but one scripture comes to mind, Psalm 37 verse 4, it says, Delight in the Lord and God will give you the desires of your heart. That idea of delighting in the Lord is it's a picture of a child just having fun, feeling safe, and being joyful with a parent, right? Or an older sibling, just laughing and giggling. And that's the picture. It's, 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 it's almost like saying, play with God, and God will give you the desires of your heart. You all remember when you were kids and you wanted to play? You just wanted to play. Whether you had playmates or not, you made the rules and you adjusted the rules as you went and you came up with characters as you went. And the best part of it was the laughter and the joy that is inherent to play. Play, however, changes when there becomes competition. It brings stress to the game you play and can change the dynamics of it and take away the joy, especially if you lose the game. And then we go a next step, sports then changes it to another level. The universalization of the game with rules, bureaucracy, leagues, and especially economics can erase joy altogether. And what was once played for fun is now work, whether the players believe it or not. Play for African Americans in particular, but underserved youth in general, all races, use play to escape the stresses of life that they have inherited. Playing a game becomes a way out or a way up. And so there's this motivation of joy within that space of the game. But within that space, their bodies are also susceptible to being exploited, commodified for financial gain. And yes, I understand that, that the players today themselves have a chance to earn considerable wealth but at the expense of their ankles, their knees, their hips, their shoulders, and even their brains. And I've seen that firsthand with a family member who passed away of brain injury from his football days. 
CTE they call it. All this while owners collect revenue that far exceeds the checks they may write for the services of the players. And we can get into this with professional sports, but especially we can get into this when it comes to amateur, and I got my air quotes up, amateur athletics in the NCAA. It's important for me to briefly give some perspective on play, games, sport, and the intersection of race and even theology as we engage this intersection for the next few weeks. You can follow Coach Jones at www.coachjones.com. That's coach with a K, K-O-A-C-H-J-O-N-E-S.com. Or on Twitter and Instagram at, at Coach Jones. That's A-T-K-O-A-C-H-J-O-N-E-S. And on Facebook, Will Jones. If you haven't already, be sure to get your copy of my book, Open Wounds, from Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or FortressPress.com. And you'll even see some of, some of this mentioned in, mentioned in my book on play and my uncles when they played the game on a high level. Or you can visit your nearest Barnes & Noble as well. I appreciate you once again for joining me here on Intersections with Phil Allen Jr. Thank you for listening and parking with me at the Intersections.